Hi everyone, welcome to Crime Science. In this podcast, we aim to explore the science of crime and the practical application of the science for loss prevention and asset protection practitioners, as well as other professionals. We would like to thank Bosch for making this episode possible. Take advantage of the advanced video capabilities offered by Bosch to help reduce your shrink risk. Integrate video recordings with point-of-sale data for visual verification of transactions and exception reporting. Use video analytics for immediate notification of important AP-related events, and leverage analytics metadata for fast forensic searches for evidence and to improve merchandising and operations. Learn more about extending your video system beyond simple surveillance in Zones 1-4 through of LPRC's Zones of Influence by visiting Bosch online at boschsecurity.com. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Crime Science, the podcast. Um, today, we're joined by Dr. Kim Rosmo uh, of Texas State University. And uh, Texas State has um, now uh, got several very prominent uh, criminologists. What we want to do is talk to, uh, to Dr. Rosmo about really two focal points. One is um, about criminal offender behavior and how that behavior interacts is is partly driven or enabled or uh, by space and place. And um, I think that's going to be particularly useful because there are implications for how we might better um, reduce victimization, convince offenders not to initiate or be able to progress their crimes. So Dr. Rosmo, and, and the second area, sorry, the second area is going to be, of course, on criminal investigations um, and rethinking criminal investigations from a few viewpoints uh, that Dr. Rosmo's got. And, and bear in mind, uh, he's got some experience here. Uh, Dr. Rosmo, um, is the University Endowed Chair in Criminology and the Director of the Center for Geospatial Intelligence and Investigation um, at Texas State University. Um, he's got a PhD in Criminology from Simon Fraser University, um, but his area, his publications, uh, and there are a lot of, not only a lot of them, but the quality and the usability of, of these papers are amazing. And I've used them in teaching and building research and doing some other things uh, quite a bit. Um, but the, geogra- the geography of crime, uh, the geography of policing, uh, and of course, then some offender profiling that comes out of that. Um, and uh, Dr. Rosmo does a lot of work um, uh, and has done with different groups, including the, the Police Foundation, uh, the ATF, um, IACP, um, and so forth. So uh, a wealth of knowledge um, and a nice blend of actually being out there um, and interacting and understanding human behavior and criminality and offending uh, in the real world, and then also combining that with an incredible amount of research and then developing very user-friendly tools for practitioners. So with no further ado, thank you, uh, Dr. Rosmo, for joining us on Crime Science today. My pleasure. So I thought if we might, uh, we would start with offenders, targets, and space. And maybe if you're you're up for it, a, a brief primer on opportunity theories um, in places and spaces and all the contributions that have come out of Canada, um, including yourself, and and how you've built on that would be a great start. So people will often refer to a random crime, uh, but but that's not accurate. Um, They might be referring to a stranger crime or a crime they can't understand, but the reality is that um, most crimes, in particular predatory crimes where the offender has to search for a target, and, and this would apply to um, the majority of property crimes, they have underlying patterns, patterns in space and in time. So I like to think of a crime as the tip of an iceberg and underneath the surface of the water, 
there's 90% of what was going on. Um, and that's something that we find uh, value to study. Um, if this crime occurred at a certain spot, how did the offender come to choose this location? And I think it's important to understand that for a number of reasons, um, but uh, for prevention purposes, it's, it's particularly important. It's also a value to investigations. So it's a general truism that um, offenders need to, they go where they know and they know where they go. So what I mean by that is every one of us has our routine activities, um, our, our um, daily and weekly rhythms where we get up, we go to work, we shop, we get gas at a certain place, etc. So this develops what Branningham and Branningham called uh, our activity space, um, the places that we frequent. And they're, they're dominated by where we live, where we work, um, the places we socialize or visit, at least pre-pandemic days, and the travel routes between these. Um, that generates for us our activity space, I mean our awareness space. So activity space generates the awareness space. Um, and those are locations we're aware of. Criminals will pick suitable targets within their awareness space. Now what a suitable target is is going to depend of course on the type of criminal. Um, and there's this term target backcloth, which refers to the spatial and temporal arrangement of targets or victims for criminals to engage in. It's their, their opportunity structure. So if you're dealing with shoplifters, well, you, have, you need a store. If you're dealing with a car thief, you're probably gonna be looking at, um, in many cases, parking lots. Um, someone who's um, a child molester will be focusing more on uh, parks and schools. So you sort of have to think within the context of what is available and then what do offenders do to find the locations and the targets they choose to attack. And it's not a lot different from our shopping um, behaviors. So we need to think about that. We need to think about that crime is risky for the offender. We need to think about the fact that we all are lazy fundamentally, including criminals, and they want to minimize their effort, least effort principle. And that often translates in not traveling any greater distances than necessary. Um, some offenders who are seeking bigger awards will travel much further than offenders who are looking for smaller awards. But these patterns are very, very consistent and have been studied around the world um, over the better part of the last century. Um, and I think that knowledge of how crime occurs and how offenders behave is the very foundation of trying to figure out how to prevent it. Fantastic build, and I couldn't agree more, and that's why we're excited to, to work with you today. Um, so I guess, it, so leading into that and building on that, um, you know, there's a reason people do things, there's a reason they do things certain things and do those certain things, certain places. And that's the heart and soul of what's going on with human behavior. Um, and the idea of, Hey, we're lazy. We're all looking for ways to maximize pleasure and comfort, um, and ease. So, um, can we kind of build on that? Um, Kim and talk a little bit about now opportunistic and intentional search and, and engagement with targets and a little bit about what that looks like. How do you think about, because we know there there are there's differential thinking and action by these offenders, um, as well as difference in differentiation, of course, in their skill levels and experience. But how do you think about things uh, and differentiate between opportunistic and intentional 
behavior, if you will. It's much more of a gray area than, than you might think. So um, the reality is only a small number of offenders are real professionals. Um, others are, are much more um, limited or scattered. Uh, they, if they're drug addicts um, and they're using their, um, um, their time to, uh, or, their, or the purpose of their crime is to obtain money to um, uh, feed their, their drug habit, then um, they may be a little more um, focused, but only during certain time periods. There's a term that I like called premeditated opportunism which means that even opportunistic crimes are often um, underlaid by previous planning and thinking um, experience. So uh, I think when we take a look at uh, offender decision-making generally, we have to recognize that it, it runs a gamut from very professional, planned, structured crimes to things that are more spur of the moment. But many of those spur of the moment things are, are um, uh, they have some something underlying them. So, for example, and I want to um, come back to this point later, but I'll put a plug in for uh, a study that Luthia Summers and I did um, with the National Institute of Justice. And I believe you've done work with uh, Dr. Summers before. But we published an article in the, just, the journal Justice Quarterly called Offender Decision-Making and Displacement. We... Um, interviewed 200 uh, repeat property offenders across Texas. Many of them were shoplifters and, and asked them about how they chose targets and uh, how they responded to crime prevention efforts or control strategies. And we, f we find that many of them um, integrate their criminal activities with their just normal routine. So let me give you a specific example. Um, one offender is walking down the street because he's going to head to his friend's house. He just is paying attention to the cars parked there. Um, if he happens to notice one, or maybe he tries a few doors, one that's open, he's going to commit a crime. So you could say that's very opportunistic, um, but it also has a structure. Also tells you to lock the doors of your cars um, because you. The whole idea is to is to make the the effort level a little higher. Um, we asked them about their perceptions of risk, reward, and effort. So the higher the risk, the less likely um, property offenders um, are going to commit a crime. The more the effort, the less likely they are. Um, the greater the reward, the more, um, sorry, the, the higher the risk and the more the effort, the less likely they'll commit a crime. The greater the potential reward, then um, that's going to um, uh, encourage them to offend. And there's some interesting things that came out of that um, that just gives you some idea. So every situation is unique. Um, you go into a store and you're, they're assessing what's going on. Some cases they said they had friends that worked in the store who gave them a lot of background information about security levels. So even though the, their friend isn't necessarily taking part in the crime, they're providing intelligence, which is useful for, for making these risk reward decisions. Um, if they saw cameras that could deter them, but only if they thought the cameras were credible. Um, a lot of security entities use fake cameras. They know this. In some cases, they know exactly which cameras are fake if they have inside knowledge. So the deterrence is, is going to be limited by whether or not there's any feasibility. 
Same with the security guard. Does the security guard look fit? Is he going to be able to, um, does he have policy support to, to make an apprehension? Is he going to be able to um, chase after somebody? Um, offenders were also, more so than we expected, concerned about the simple fact of identification. And we found some that said a police car would drive by, they wouldn't necessarily be deterred. The police car slows down and someone looks at them, they would be deterred. And of course, if they actually stopped and talked to them and you know took notes about who they were, that, that was a, a big deterrence. Um, because they're concerned about identification later on down the road. They have some general knowledge of the um, forensic capabilities and um, uh, the ability to do facial recognition, et cetera. But, so they're always thinking about this risk reward um, and effort, but I wanna then make the point that this can be modified by the influence of drugs and or alcohol. And there's two big things to consider here. One is the need to buy drugs and or alcohol um, if you are um, addicted or, or you have some substance abuse issue. So that would drive the crime. The other one is if you are intoxicated or impaired or under the influence when the offender is, when the, if the offender is intoxicated, impaired, or um, under the influence, that could affect, affect their ability to take risks. They may be much more likely to engage in crazy behavior. Um, one offender said um, that uh, um, for uh, certain offenders using certain drugs, they feel like they're Superman. So, you know, we have to recognize that there's a range of activity and that rationality will be influenced by other factors. I'm not sure, I may have just gone off on some tangents there, so please bring me back if, if I haven't answered the question. No, you totally nailed it. And I'm really excited you brought up that research um, and, and then tying in, okay, that what we do has to do with what we like to call theory and most don't in the, pract in the practical world as we know, but you're, you're, you're talking about, so we're gonna leverage uh, how offenders tend to think. They, they are all different, they all have different backgrounds and skill levels and so forth, but uh, the, all the back cloth, as you said, but at the end of the day, you know, is it something they want? Is there enough value in, in this? Is there, is uh, the reward great enough? And, and then now part of this not too pretty uh, calculus is, all right, how hard, what's my effort here? And then um, time and so forth. And then finally, what's the real risk or my calculated risk that, you know what, something could happen here uh, that I might not like, like getting caught or punished. Um, or identified any way that might lead to that. So I like, so you tie in that effort, risk, and reward calculus, whatever that may look like. And we know it's not clean um, like the economists might wish for, uh, but then you tie that into the mechanisms of action by uh, what we do. So police, if they're driving by at whatever speed, uh, you know, okay, I see them, but I don't view them as a, a near and, you know, clear and present danger to me. That's not a real threat, potentially. I ignore it wait, they're slowing down, I think. And that's probably because of me. Maybe I'm paranoid, but they're, oh, there's, I think they're looking. And then finally, you know, whoa, they're pulling over, they're coming over, they're starting to talk to me. So the, the, that informs how we protect, how we dose, um, you know, what the mechanisms of actions of the things that we do to protect people in places. So you, you wandered, or you went right into where I thought was very helpful. If, could if I we could talk a little bit about, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, ahead. I just wanted just to follow up. The, the name of the article is Offender Decision-Making and Displacement. And um, we found that one crime prevention strategy 
probably just results in them displacing to try another approach. And and displacement is is about how offenders respond to crime prevention or crime control. And they can change the location. They can change the time they operate in. They could change the type of target they're looking at. They could change the type of strategy they're using. And they can change the type of crime they're committing. So we wanted to study how they would respond to these. I wanted to mention that one strategy may not be enough to deter them, but if you put in um, three, that seemed to be the turning point. It's also important that the strategies be viable, that they look realistic, that they're not just theater, because experienced offenders have a lot of knowledge and they can assess out when something is, is fake, and that will have very limited deterrent value, at least on these professional groups who had a minimum of, of three prior um, arrests. Excellent. Excellent. And displacement is huge. And, and you know, and well, and we have the same on the private side, if you will, where displacement is well is understood somewhat superficially a lot of times. Well, they might not do it here. But as you said, they, well, they might not do it now or they might not do it this way or they right. might not even target what they came for. This time. Spatial displacement was the most common Okay. Um, okay. And one thing we found of interest that it, if some of, if offender likes a particular store, because they know the layout, they have a little experience there, they, they'd be more likely to, rather than going to a nearby store, going to that same store, but some somewhere else, just because their comfort level was higher with that particular store, like a, a Walmart or a Home Depot. Interesting. So, no, that's good insight. And then and you talked about mono versus some kind of poly treatments, if you will, that, you know, let's look at it. Maybe there's two or three different mechanisms of actions going on here, um, like we're trying to do with COVID-19. We may be attacking it in different ways. We may be protecting that that target in different ways. Yes. Okay, excellent. It's And the additive nature of that, the interaction even of those separate treatments might add up to something even better. Okay, good. And, and for those out there listening, offender decision-making and displacement, um, Rossmo and Summers, um, looks like it's 2019. I've read this, but uh, for those that don't know, and I know, and you know this too as well, Kim, that uh, it's in JQ Justice Quarterly, which is one of our top, top, top ranked journals uh, in CRIM, um, but uh, it's not necessarily green. In other words, uh, available to everybody. Unfortunately, uh, there are, most of these journals are behind paywalls, um, so they can pay the bills, I guess. But um, so I want to get that out there on the record if I could. So, you know, some of your uh, early work and current work and, and well-used work um, it involves sort of serial offenders and their hunting process, if you will, um, and some of their patterns and how you uh, look at that and, and some of the tools you've built to help um, maybe better predict and, uh, or prognosticate anyway and then solve. Can you, can you Dr. Rosmo, talk a little bit about that, that process? A lot of my uh, prior research and operational experiences has been in the area of um, this term geographic profiling. So this is typically applied to cases with multiple crimes or multiple um, locations. Um, and I want to differentiate that. You could have a, by multiple crimes, you could have a serial um, arsonist or serial rapist. Um, and you have a number of crimes the same person has committed that have been linked together. Or you could have one crime, but a number of locations, which sometimes occurs with, uh, say, kidnapping case, and you've got cell phone tower data, um, or 
a bomb maker who makes purchases from several different locations that can be tracked back. The idea is because this um, process of choosing a location is not random, we can use the information from multiple crimes to determine the most probable location of offender residence. We use a piece of software called Rigel. We input the locations of the connected crimes and that produces for us something called a Jeopardy surface, which is a, a three-dimensional probability surface, which you can use now to prioritize your, your suspects or your information in the investigation. So that is, even if you get something like a horrendous serial killer, um, their crime location choices are not random. And while we couldn't do much with one crime, you start to get a number of crimes and the rules of probability are such that um, we can start to get a pretty um, good focus. Then that is used for suspect prioritization or for information management in terms of investigative decision-making to help focus the usually limited resources um, a police agency may have. Excellent. So do you just uh, talk any more, discriminate between say, you know, I remember terms in the past, hunter style, trapper, you know, those that are hunting in, in nearby geographical areas, those that are maybe travel somewhere else and then do that, or those that wait, you know, the, the spider in the web. Um, is that something that's still relevant, uh, Dr. Rosmo? Yes. Yeah, so um, when you're first doing this research, it seemed important to understand the differences between how various offenders hunted or searched for victims. And uh, some of this work was inspired by foraging theory that biologists have done, like, so how do lions find their prey or how do birds um, find insects in, in a field? And we studied their, um, their spatial patterns, their movements, what they found optimal, um, and their diff the different techniques. For criminals, we found that often most criminals would go out in a very simple, what we called a, a hunter style. And they're looking for a victim. For the most part, they're looking in locations they have previous experience with. Um, we found some would engage in a strategy, and now we're talking about violent offenders, that would bring victims into them. Um, and then once they were under some control in the environment um, that the victim um, had, then the, uh, sorry, that in the environment that the offender controlled, then the offender would attack. Um, we found some would um, commute to an entirely different area to engage in a crime, though it's usual that they had some sort of base there. You know, if, if you live in a big city, you're probably familiar with the fact that many of your colleagues live in a, a suburb or even in another town, they commute into the central part of the city to work, etc. cetera. Um, I live in Austin, Texas. I work in San Marcos, Texas. Um, that's about a 30 mile travel thing. So I have activities and locations in, in both places. Um, and um, we also consider how, in addition to the search of the hunt, the type of attack um, offenders would engage in. So this was important and useful to understand their geography. If we have an unsolved case, for the most, most part, we're just looking at a series of locations, maybe times, and we're trying to work backwards to understand um, more about the offender and where he or she might be based. And so the, that was the purpose of the um, hunting style typology. And other people, for example, Eric Beauregard at Simon Fraser University has done a lot of work with this as well on sex offenders. Um, 
It's also important, I think, to understand the difference between targets that are static and those that are mobile. Um, what I mean by that is if you want to break into a house, well, that's a, a static target. You know that target's already, always going to be there. But if you are a, going to be a purse snatcher or sexually assault a woman walking home from a bus stop, well, those targets are mobile. They may not be there at another time. And I think this is also a good segue into the importance of understanding the, the temporal patterns. So we have at least three temporal patterns that are important in crime. What is time of day? Um, what time of, time of day does the crime occur? So pre-COVID-19, uh, most residential burglaries happen in the daytime when people were at work. Uh, commercial burglaries would happen at nighttime when people weren't there. Um, you have day of week patterns, often with the weekend being very busy for certain types of crimes. You finally have sort of seasonal or monthly patterns. Um, and these affect weather and they affect light, lighting. So in Vancouver, um, studies of burglaries, many of which committed by juveniles, um, peaked in the period when uh, school had started and nighttime started, um, began earlier. So it was like in the winter um, and children coming, or not um, teenagers, coming home from school and it's now dark but people are not yet home from work. And that was kind of a peak time period in which they could offend. Um, uh, a famous case in Southern California called the chair burglary case, the offender uh, broke into homes in the evening, which is very unusual, but he picked weekends when people were out um, visiting friends or at restaurants. Uh, and that was actually because that was a departure from sort of the normal routine, it provided some useful clues. And, and one of those was, well, how does the offender know that people are away? Because no one had ever seen him. There were no witnesses to this guy. It was a bit of a shadow. And that informed um, what they looked for at the crime sites. And they found that most of these places um, that had been targeted backed up onto a green belt which suggested the offender was walking through the green belt, looking through the windows and finding places where there was no activity and that would tell him what to go into. But that, knowing how the offender hunts, allowed the police to know how to hunt to find him. Excellent. And you can well imagine, um, you know, we're working with the big drug chains and uh, others that armed robberies are a, a, a problem. And so now we've got a particular issue with serial uh, robbers, in this case, uh, a lot of them are crews. Um, and instead of just an individual, but again, those crews seem to come and go. They're very opportunistic in their own nature. But um, so that your perspective and some of the articles, the research, the work that you and others, including Beauregard, as you mentioned, we we use his papers uh, or which you're on half of them uh, to understand search and attack methods and how you guys look at you know how they approach and the choice for their attack location and things like that. Um, so Maybe any like thoughts just, at all on that? Yes, go ahead. Well, I just want to add one more point there is that an offender is not going to target a place or attack it if he's not aware of it. So the, the very first thing to do is to make sure that to limit the exposure um, to offenders. So I live on a private driveway off of a public street, and we don't allow people onto the private driveway, even if they're distributing flyers or brochures. Um, if they're not even aware of what's there, 
that reduces our risk of, of being victimized uh, significantly. So step one, make sure they don't know about you. Perfect. And, you know, I'll tell you what, we're doing research of, with, with, you can imagine who, on uh, porch piracy with some of the chains and groups. Um, and, and I love it. That's kind of the first recommendation. I love the uh, validation of that, that, you know, if, they, if the parcel was put uh, behind or in a box or behind a plant or planter or something, that the offender doesn't know about it. I'm not sure the next domino is going to tip. Yeah, um, that's that's absolutely true. Hide it behind a pillar. Um, make sure you have some sort of uh, camera on your doorbell. Make sure there's a sign telling them you have a sign, um, uh, a camera. Um, and um, uh, the other part of this too is the inside knowledge, which we talked about before. So. I was sort of giving you an example of, of someone delivering restaurant flyers who tells his friend about, hey, you know, this house looked pretty good. Um, we found for many serial sex offenders, a lot of the victims would, they wouldn't have their drapes closed. And so they can peer in the windows and they can see what's going on. Um, you know, we, we had two serial rapists in um, the Vancouver area that were targeting single mothers. They would their MO was to break in and threaten the child of the single mother to gain compliance. But then that raised the question, how does, how do these two guys know what places to break into um, where there would be a single mother with a child? And um, when we actually visited the sites, the answer to that was pretty simple. They're, they're going to the right neighborhood that has the right demographics. And these places didn't have fences and they didn't have curtains. We, we would go there, um, myself and the RCMP, we'd look through the windows, we can see, you know, trikes and other indicators. It was not at all difficult to figure out who lived there. So denying that basic knowledge increases offenders' uncertainty, increases their risk, and is a very useful crime prevention thing, no matter what type of crime we're talking about. Remember, we go where we know and we know where we go, but if they don't know something, they just might decide to move along. And, and I'll circle right back to the importance of insiders who may not actively be engaged in theft, but still provide intelligence of great value to friends or um, relatives who are offenders, and that gives them um, a foot up. Excellent. Excellent. So now if we could turn uh, over to rethinking criminal investigations, my words, um, but uh, but also I know that's a, a, a large area of interest for you and a critical need for law enforcement and in this case for loss prevention as well. Um, can you maybe launch into it? You know, how do we, how do you look at criminal investigations? How they, how maybe the, why are, what's, how do we explain the variance of successful versus maybe not so successful investigations, but what are the, what are some changeable things about that? What are some variables that we can actually affect that seems to be part of your line of thinking. If you could, if you could talk a little about that, uh, Kim, that'd be great. So the clearance rate, which is the proportion of crimes that are solved by the police, has dropped significantly in the United States. And perhaps the metric people pay the most attention to is the homicide clearance rate, which despite the fact that murders have dropped significantly per capita since 1991, we keep seeing this declining proportion of them that are solved. Um, this applies to most other crimes, not all. Um, there's also incredible variation between 
cities in the United States and between the United States and other countries. So Britain, for example, solves about 90% of its homicides. The United States a couple of years ago dropped to a historic low of 59%. Um, no one really knows why. Some of the theories are lack of resources, um, inability, um, sorry, the failure of communities to support the police by agreeing to be witnesses. Um, a lot of things that um, m m exist sort of on a larger macro level. Um, I think it's very clear that police departments are not gonna solve crimes without community support. And um, an old study in the 1970s done by the Rand Corporation found that in actual fact, most crimes were solved by members of the public. And then second of all, by patrol officers and detectives were the third most common group for solving crimes. So detectives need good communication and cooperation levels with patrol officers and the police department needs good community cooperation. So that's essential to solving crime. Um, the forensics and the DNA and the state of the art stuff is all valuable. Um, and let's remember that's evidence and information that solves crimes, but without, without that larger context of support, um, it's not gonna happen. I think there's also increasing legal hurdles and, and bureaucracies that have sometimes led to police departments being able to do less with the same amount of, of resources. Um, and as a consequence, and this is hardly new, this goes back to the early days of the Thames River Police, uh, private corporations are picking up some of that um, that slack and they're, they're doing what they need to do as, as well. And um, I, I, my last time I looked at this was some time ago, but the private security industry is much big, bigger in terms of personnel and money spent than the public security industry, i.e. the police. So they play a very important role. Um, I think one of the things we can do is improve our information, in particular our information sharing. So, I know of many cases where a criminal was arrested by one agency. It was so clear by analyzing their cell phone data that they were engaged in criminal activity, including some of that hunting behavior in other agencies. Um, the first agency gives them all this information on a platter, but they don't bother following up because it's not the, the urgent matter. And it's like, the way to look at this is like maintenance on your vehicle. You can ignore it and continue to ignore it and still drive your car, then, then one day you're going to pay a serious price. Um, and that's something to, to think about the sort of the level of cooperation, the level of information sharing, the importance of gathering evidence. And one of my major areas of interest has been criminal investigative failures. And most of those are evidence failures um, and also biases. Uh, I think that, you know, we have to realize that we're human beings. Everyone has biases. And I'm not talking here about the, the biases that are in the news all the time. Um, I'm talking here just about our decision-making that gets distorted by things we want. So we, I would say, uh, to give you an example of the typical criminal investigative failure is you get a high-profile crime, maybe a horrible murder. There's a lot of pressure on investigators. The police rush to make a judgment. They prematurely shift from an evidence-based investigation where they're collecting and analyzing evidence to a suspect-based investigation where they go, okay, I know who did it. And in the cases I've studied or some of the ones I've been involved with, sometimes they made that shift within hours and they have only a fraction of the evidence. But once their mind is made up, 
it's very hard to get them to change their mind. They start to have very distorted perceptions of the evidence and things just, just go sideways after that. Um, so it's all about logical analytical thinking based on all the evidence, uh, making sure that you don't have premature judgment, keeping your, um, your mind open um, and um, doing everything you can to get all the evidence because evidence has a, a shelf life, whether it's, evidence at a crime scene exposed to the weather or a witness with memory. You need to get that that evidence. You need to get it soon. You need to talk to neighbors, you know, um, your canvas. You need to interview witnesses. You need to do everything you can thoroughly and properly. But underlying some of these problems, of course, are resource limitations. And I greatly worry about um, all the discussions and, and clamors, um, which I think are highly irresponsible to, to defund the police. Um, because we'll pay a, a price for that down the road. Um, and some cities are already reporting increased crime rates. So the, these are things that, of course, are happening at a political level. But um, if people are not going to cooperate the police, we're going to have a problem. It goes back to Sir Robert Peel, where he said, the police are the people, the people are the police. Um, and, and we need to kind of um, remember that at all times. Um, but yeah, investigations really need to improve. There are some cities that have about only 30% of their homicides they ever solve. Um, and this creates a bit of a feedback loop where the public goes, well, the police aren't doing me any good. They're not you know, solving my brother's murder. And then when it comes time for the police to look for witnesses for a crime, well, they don't trust the police. Um, they don't wanna cooperate, so witnesses don't come forward. And that's a vicious cycle that needs to be broken um, because we all want to live in safe communities, but some of us don't. Great insight and, and feedback. And, you know, I was curious um, now in law enforcement, if there are data, if there's uh, a paper, I haven't actually seen one yet, but that, that may be me. Um, but that discusses, you know, what proportion of agencies uh, have actual uh, investigator or detective training courses where, okay, you're now going to be assigned, you're going to become a detective. Um, so you're going to go through criminal investigations 101 and 102 and so forth. I know in our industry don't necessarily have that. We've got some really nice new certifications. We've got a lot of interview and interrogation training, but not so much on how to, how to actually uh, follow, conduct, organize and conduct an evidence-based investigation. If I go back to over to you, what, what does that look like in the public sector? Well, that's a, a really good point. So I talked earlier about how the United Kingdom has a much higher clearance rate than the U.S. does for murder. Canada's between the U.S. and the U.K. Um, but one of the things that the U.K. has is um, national systems and policies um, for all policing, partly because the federal government provides a lot of funding for all the police agencies. And the smallest police agency in the UK is a thousand um, officers. So they're able to exert a different level of control. The United States, the average size of a police agency is, is probably like 19 or officers. So those are very small. It's a lot harder to have standardization in training um, when you're dealing with, with things on such a small local level. Um, there is some training that exists. Um, uh, when I was at the Vancouver Police Department, I took a number of courses, but 
I noticed, I, th I thought it was unusual that none of my training, and this actually is true for most places, tells investigators how to think like a detective. So um, it's just kind of assumed they'll talk about databases and legal updates and, you know, strategies and tactics, but they don't talk about actually how to think about all the evidence, how to put it all together, um, which is one of the reasons I became interested in, the, in this in the first place, especially when I saw some bad decision making occur that I've considered to be somewhat um, illogical. So what we need is more training. We need better training. Um, Dr. Jerry Ratcliffe, who you um, are probably familiar with because of the work he does in this area, um, and I have submitted a proposal to the National Institute of Justice where we wanted to identify the, what agencies considered their um, best investigators and figure out what training was, was optimal, what helped them become really good investigators, or what personnel selection criteria made them good investigators. Um, even though we got good reviews, NIJ didn't fund the project. We'll try again next year. But, um, you know, maybe here's another thing. There's, there's not that much government focus in terms of research on investigations and what there is tends to be on the technical scientific side. Uh, but at the end of the day, this is all about the people. And all the best tools in the world are not helpful unless you can get um, – detectives thinking about how to use them. And I think this is also applies to sort of the whole process of an investigation. So if I could be very specific about what I'm talking about, and, and, and by I'm going to use my own city of Austin, um, they would take months between the point of time of collecting a fingerprint from a crime scene and actually submitting it to the database. And um, a couple of years ago, it hit the media, there was this prolific burglar who had been identified, but basically he was allowed to run for free for nine months because the fingerprint had not been submitted. And it's not like he was on a taking a holiday, you know, he was an active prolific burglar, but because of resource issues or prioritization, um, um, misprioritization, the uh, fingerprint just sat there for nine months. So the whole thing has to work together in concert and that's public, Police, crime scene, detectives. Detectives um, have been criticized by the RAND study and others of being more bureaucrats than actually the type of detectives that you know we would envision from our experiences reading novels or, or watching TV. And I think um, it's become one of the least um, focused on areas. I'm a member of a couple of major organizations in American Society of Criminology, the Academy of Criminal Justice Sciences. And I looked at the conference agendas one year where they actually had a breakdown. Even though policing is perhaps one of the largest areas of study, only 2% of the papers were on investigations. So even in academia, for the most part, investigations get ignored. Um, and that's a problem. Investigations won't get better without more research, without more training and maybe a better knowledge of what type of people can do investigations. We want people that are flexible, that are willing to um, look at the evidence, not um, be victims of uh, a rush to judgment. Uh, we want them to be dedicated and thorough, to have good um, interpersonal skills. But you know, this stuff is understudied. 
great, great insights again. And, you know, that was a major area of, of interest for me in talking about, yeah, how do we maybe uh, make uh, the core, develop courses, evidence-based courses. And I, I certainly wish I could be a peer reviewer on that, uh, the proposal you all have or are considering uh, submitting to NIJ, but uh, to endorse, but um, that sounds fantastic, understanding exactly how you do it. And you mentioned novels, and we've got TV shows, particularly sort of the British TV shows that are so good. To me, anyway, they're interesting. But, yeah, the, that's where you see individual, the successful individuals. They spend a lot more time thinking about and collecting the evidence than, they, you know, than, than otherwise working and becoming bureaucrats. Uh, we know you've got a report, but I think report writing was the other thing. Uh, are people able to even – explain in a written form exactly based on this, we came on this, you know, all the logic train uh, thesis, if you will, seems to be another area of opportunity uh, in that whole process. I saw something recently uh, where um, somebody had asked police agencies about what were the characteristics they were looking for when they hired people. And um, uh, I, I was a bit surprised um, to see this, but it makes sense if you think about it. They said that one of the most important things was the communication skills, both written and oral, of anyone they hired. Perfect. Perfect. And, and it goes to what you said on the front end, that with patrol and, you know, engaging with the public, getting to know them to the extent that you can, um, but, but uh, establishing some credibility and confidence with them. And then when we've got a problem, you know, you're going to pick up a lot more. And that's why, like you said, they're a huge source of patrol of in, intelligence, information, and knowing where to go, who to talk to, and maybe even providing some insights because they're picking it up. Uh, yes. The detectives can't. Yeah. So I think that leads to now where we want to kind of wrap. And that is talking about connecting investigations uh, to problem solving, engaging detectives, your, your premise uh, around engaging detectives in crime prevention. How do we leverage their experience, their observations, you know, their expertise in that, in that process. Well, I'm going to do another plug for another article, which was written by John Eck and myself. Um, John Eck's at the University of uh, Cincinnati, and he was one of the very early people involved in the whole pop uh, movement. Um, and what we did was wrote a piece um, about rethinking detectives. And some of it... Um, it are things we've talked about so far today, but it sort of uh, focuses then on problem solving. So again, to go back to Peel, it's much better to prevent a crime, you know, than, than to have to resolve it by an arrest after the, after the fact. Um, so problem solving, I've had experience with that in some problem neighborhoods in Vancouver from my policing days, and I'm uh, a big fan. I think there's significant potential with problem solving. Um, I don't exclude the need to um, investigate and arrest, especially the prolific professional offenders, but a lot of things can um, either be eliminated or reduced by problem-solving efforts. But it seems to be something that police departments are, in many cases, reluctant to embrace, and I, I'm, I'm not sure why. Problem-solving is... Um, been shown in so many fields to be highly successful. There's a lot of parallels between uh, medicine and, and policing. Um, uh, you know, you, you want to prevent a crime in the first place. You want to avoid surgery. Um, you often need to sort of maintain or manage issues. You need evidence. You need analysis. Um, 
in in the end of the day, a real successful things is where you know you sort of try to put yourself out of business. Uh, I don't see that happening anytime soon, but to the degree that we could reduce problems um, because they were, or those problems that were situational in nature, um, there, there's just huge potential there. And I think it's underutilized. Um, and I think that part of this comes from an overly legalistic focus. Now I'll blame the lawyers here. Um, on how we might deal with some of the issues in the criminal justice system. So we don't need to arrest. It's one of the things I used to tell rookies who were working with me. I said, don't make an arrest. Or, or sorry, I said, always ask yourself the question, why am I making this arrest? You know, is it a good idea? What are the other options? But the incident-based focus, whether it's in patrol work or in detective work, prevents a problem-solving approach. One of my pet peeves because of my work on serial crime is a failure of many agencies to even look for other crimes that might be linked to your, your, the crime you're initially investigating. So that uh, effort to step back and say, all right, this rape or this burglary, what else might it be connected to? And people that do that often have much more success because they can see underlying patterns, they can identify common suspects, and they can then wrap up a lot of cases by um, focusing on, on um, the most prolific offender. And the, I'll use the chair burglary case in um, Irvine, California, again, as an example. The crime analyst there was, was asked by their special investigative team to take a look at these burglaries. And her analysis identified some commonalities, which led them to do a geographic profile. They put patrol efforts, sorry, uh, surveillance efforts out. And the very first night they identified the person they were looking for. But one of the things that um, the analyst, Lori Velarde did was say, look, you're not gonna catch this guy in the act. Catching criminal burglars in the act is really, really challenging. Um, instead, what I want you to do, cause I don't think this guy's local based on the factors of the cases, just collect license plate numbers of everyone you see in the peak area of the geo profile on um, the peak nights where this offender has been shown to be busy. And the very first night they got a plate, which when they ran it, came up to uh, a car rental company um, up in Downey. And um, that led to um, arrest of an individual who by his own admission was responsible for a million dollars of thefts in every single year. And he'd been active at least for 10 years. Fantastic. So uh, another good example of how we create these learning loops and these action loops. Um, and for those out there, the or this article we're talking about is in Criminology and Public Policy, a journal that those of us that are in ASC, as Dr., uh, which is American Society of Criminology, um, received this. And here, trying to go from, you know, S2P, science to practice, as we talk about a lot, and uh, the new detective rethinking criminal investigations, uh, Ekin Rosmo, in another recent article, 2019 here, um, and this is one of the reasons I put this, uh, I really want to emphasize this, is how do we improve investigations? There's a, you know, the, to me, I'll, I'll just let you know, uh, we have organized retail crime. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with that. Uh, these are quasi-organized to very organized groups um, of all sizes and shapes, and they do commit fraud, some violence, uh, mostly theft um, in all forms. But there's those investigators 
are particularly skilled um, on the retail side. And in, in many agencies, not most, but many agencies actually have now one or more detectives assigned to ORC and that's where they work extensively on these. So you're going to see some pretty top-notch investigations going on in that with those teams. Um, uh, and then again, a lot of the internal investigators that we have in these, in these companies, but there's always, always room for improvement. And um, that's why this discussion is so important. And these articles uh, based on the research that you all have done and, and the policy and practice implications that you're putting out there are critical. Um, anything I've missed, you hear good reporters say that I'm going to ask you that, uh, Dr. Rossmo today, anything you think that this group and this group does include law enforcement, um, as well as private practitioners and academics. So you started off by talking about trying to learn from those people who actually have engaged in offending and well, I might have, you know, lots of experience as an investigator and as a patrol officer, um, that level of experience pales by comparison to someone who was engaged in crim- committing crimes on a you know daily basis for for years of their lives so um if you go back to the first part of the 19th century the french police um turned eugene, eugene francois vidoc um who was a, a famous criminal into a police officer and he provided all sorts of uh, ideas and insights and strategies. The saying, you know, set a thief to catch a thief. So I think there's much that we can learn by paying attention to offenders, um, to what they do, to how they respond to what we do. Um, Dr. Summers and I wrote another paper about red teaming um, in criminal investigations. And uh, the military do this all the time. They say, okay, we're going to do a war game. Um, our side's the blue team and you guys will play the role of the red team and you try to thwart what we're doing. And these are very valuable lessons um, that can be learned from this type of war gaming. But we don't do that often enough in crime prevention or, or policing. If we do X, what might the offender do? And then how can we prepared, be prepared and respond to that? And um, I think in particular people that have been criminals are going to have even better insight to how they might get around these particular strategies. And so, you know, again, this all takes some work and effort and um, learning, and, but it's worth it. And then it's very important to try to pass this on to others. So we all benefit. And rest assured, I will pull that article as well. Um, well, I just want to, uh, again, express how grateful we are to have you on today. Um, you know, the, the combination of experience um, and solid science, uh, but taking that combination to, to real world practice is incredible and valuable, valuable and valued by us and, and our listeners and members. So um, I want to thank you again, Dr. Rosmo, and of course, in this bizarro 2020 time, uh, wish you uh, best wishes and safe passages through this 2020 experiment. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Crime Science Podcast presented by the Loss Prevention Research Council and sponsored by Bosch Security. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find more crime science episodes and valuable information at lpresearch.org. The content provided in the Crime Science Podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for legal, financial, or other advice. Views expressed by guests of the Crime Science Podcast are those of the authors and do not reflect the opinions or positions of the Loss Prevention Research Council.